0: Spirituality is a place that is empowering. And our sexuality is a place that we draw from to be empowered. It's a source of agency, creativity. And when I say sexuality, I don't just mean like sex. I mean like the the eros, like your life force energy. And sexual violence is an attack on that. And that doesn't just go away just because the incident of the violence has has ended and is weeks away or even years away. That area needs healing. That's, that's your spirit and your life force needs some healing.
1: Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today my guest is somatic psychotherapist and podcast creator Laura Mae Northrop. Her remarkable show, Inside Eyes, focuses on the use of psychedelics and entheogens to heal from sexual trauma, drawing largely on personal stories from survivors of sexual violence and exploring the ways they have used these medicines to heal. Trigger warning. This episode of Voices of Esalen contains frank descriptions of sexual violence and trauma, so please take care of yourself and use discretion while listening. This episode is not appropriate for children. Laura May Northrop, thank you so much for joining us today to uh, talk about psychedelics and to talk about your podcast, Inside Eyes. What has been the aim uh, of that show?
0: It's about using psychedelics and entheogens to heal sexual trauma. And it's coming at that, looking at it through a political lens. I'm a psychotherapist. There's a somatic lens in there. The first couple of interviews kind of set up sort of what the bulk of the series is. And then the last few interviews or last few episodes, sort of close it. So the first couple are a lot about the kind of what is trauma? What does it mean politically? Talking more specifically about psychedelics and entheogens in the use of treating trauma. There's also an episode where I go into a lot of the issues that people are going to be facing if they want to do this work around uh, the fact that a lot of it's illegal. Then it goes into a set of interviews with people that are really in depth that have actually used a psychedelic or an entheogen or multiple psychedelics and entheogens to heal sexual trauma. And, and we go into like all different aspects with, with each of them about kind of what that was like and their preparatory period, how they were integrating the experiences. And then there's also an episode that I felt I had to put in there, which is about how many people actually experience sexual violence when they go to use psychedelics or entheogens. Uh, which I felt ethically like that needs to be said because I think a lot of, there's a lot of idealizing happening right now. um, And it's just really important to be mindful. The psychedelic sort of, as people say, community or the psychedelic world is similar to the rest of the world where there's just a lot of sexual violence.
1: What was the impetus for creating this show? Why did you want to create a show that focused on sexual violence and the ways to treat it?
0: So I work with sexual violence clinically it's also just been something in terms of activism and just sort of engaging in the world that's really important to me that people can seek healing. And as I talk about in the show, I really see sexual violence as a, a personal issue, a family issue, but also as a political issue and really a, a collective, collective humanity issue. And I really want people to be able to heal. And there is a place that a lot of people get to where they really plateau. You know, in a lot of ways, I think like we're we're what what is that saying? We're building the plane as we fly it. Mm -hmm. Um, I heard somebody was saying use that phrase the other day, and I was just thinking like that's that's kind of how healing is in a lot of ways, especially kind of from the social location that I'm in, which is like very Western culture. I'm a white person. Uh, You know, I was trained in the field of psychotherapy, and there's just a lot of ways that we don't really understand the level of trauma that we're living with at this point in the world. Like we, there's just so many generations of trauma. While there are a lot of healing systems that are intact, that are really, really old healing systems where I think there's a lot of wisdom about what trauma is and, and how to heal it. We're also just looking at a level of trauma that is so extreme. And I think that's part of capitalism and colonization. And, you know, there's a lot going into that. But so, Basically, people get to this plateau, a lot of times, you know, even to get to that plateau requires that you have the access to get to psychotherapy, or a lot of just a lot of healing. And in that plateau space, I think a lot of people just struggle to really, really move beyond PTSD. And I know people are doing it with psychedelics and entheogens. And so I made the series because I was just wanting people to be able to have more information about it and really have information that's really personal um, and it's not a research study where you're just reading like 67% of people came out of the study and didn't have PTSD anymore, but where you can actually hear like, what was this person actually going through? Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Inside Eyes. I'm your host, Laura Northrup, and this series is about the use of entheogens and psychedelics to heal from sexual trauma. In today's episode, I interview Shan. Shan is a tattoo artist in New York City and is going to talk about her experiences healing from childhood sexual abuse with ayahuasca, a word of caution. Not every episode in this series contains graphic content, but this one does. None of these episodes are suitable for children. And please take care of yourself as the listener.
2: I've wanted to die since I was a little kid. I've had that feeling like I want to die. I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it past 30. Like I really believe that. I remember thinking as, as as an eight-year-old, like, I'm not going to live past 30. Um, I never attempted suicide, but I think for me, the thing was always when I was driving. So, you know, in New York, New Jersey, we drive a lot, and I was always just dreaming of of veering into the oncoming lane of traffic.
0: Were you aware of the sexual abuse before the ayahuasca?
2: I, I, I always knew there was something wrong, um, I always knew that there was something wrong and that I was sexually abused. I had ascribed it to an experience that I had when I was seven, six or seven, with a girl who was four years older than me. And I thought for most of my life that that's why I was so messed up, was that experience. Um, And that experience was always troubling for me. Even as a child, I knew that this wasn't right. But there was that, you know, my true trauma hiding underneath it protected by this sort of veil of idealization. I mean, I idealized my uncle, my abuser. um, Because when I was a kid, he was the only one who paid any attention to me, really.
0: In that first ayahuasca journey, I'm imagining that you have done more than one journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In that first journey, could you talk a little bit about what happened for you?
2: It was tremendous. It was... Because prior to that point I hadn't identified my uncle as my abuser. He died when I was ten, and um, that was incredibly hard for me. And everybody my whole life was like, you know, he loved you, you were so special to him. And 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 I I, I wasn't able prior to that point, prior to trying ayahuasca, I wasn't able to identify him as the person who did those things. Because it was too painful. Mm-hmm. But that first experience with ayahuasca. I'll, I'll tell you what happened because I have such a clear memory of it. I mean, I felt... I was the only one in the room who was completely still the whole night. I didn't purge. I didn't have any... Um, I was just completely still, like like a mummy. I was sitting with my arms crossed, laying on the ground with my arms crossed. And in that pose, I felt all my muscles like sort of contracting and pulsing, like I was working this thing out. And there was this sensation that I was laying on a bed of dead leaves, you know, in the jungle. And, and a woman appeared above me, and I knew that she was a doctor. And the only thing I did do physically throughout the night was I kept turning my head back and opening my jaws really, really wide. And every time that would happen, I had the sensation that she was shoving her arm down into my throat, down into my stomach. And in my stomach, she would grab these... Leeches, they were like black oily leeches, huge slugs, you know? And she would pull them out of my stomach and pull them out of my mouth. And every time that she would do that, I would relive a memory. Every slug was a memory. So I went and I relived every moment that was really horrific for me. And I would, me, the adult me, as a third party observer, would go back to that memory and see what happened to the child me. And at the end of every memory, she, the doctor, would would crush the slug. And then I, the adult version of me, I, I had a gun. And I would go over to my child self that was suffering, and I put one bullet in my head and kill myself in that moment and lay it to rest. And that happened for, I think it was like 11 or 12 really pivotal moments that were incredibly painful for me. And at the end, after I had killed myself in all of those moments, I felt her gather up my dead body, you know, and she laid me in a pile of leaves and and covered my body with leaves. And it was calming and comforting. It was this incredible sense of relief. And while that was happening, there was a part of me that was riding on this panther that was almost like, it was like it was made of wind. It was flying around and, and it went back to him and it blew poison into his lungs
0: him, meaning your My own.
2: uncle. That, that was sort of the culmination of everything that had happened. Yeah. That in that moment I completed the cycle where I, I, I went with this panther back and I blew that poison into his lungs and he died. And I felt finally that it was complete, that that whole bubble of events was complete in that moment. And when I woke up in the morning, I felt alive again. I felt reborn, like I, I can live now. I woke up grateful, um, tired, With that sort of post-ceremony, there's, I wouldn't call it a glow, um, but there's some sort of energy that stays with you and has with me for every ceremony that I've done um, for a couple of days, maybe a week after. Um, And then the real work started, because it's like once the glow faded, it's like I was discharged from this psychic hospital, and I had to then do the real work of unpacking everything that I'd seen. You know, and that involved, um, you know, this whole time I've been in therapy. Yeah. Um, and I've been with my my therapist for six, seven years now, and I, I I trust my therapist, and that's been, I don't, I think if I didn't have that to fall back on, it would have been incredibly hard to integrate what I did see.
1: Can you talk to me a little bit about your experience as a somatic therapist?
0: Yeah. So I think somatic therapy can get pretty psychedelic on its own, like no drugs or no assistance with that. And sometimes it's hard. You know, I think one of the things that a lot of people have a hard time going into altered state space without a really powerful psychedelic or entheogen. And what I mean to say when I say that is like, even meditation is, and I think in my interview with Spring Washam in this series, I, I think I might be asked her this question, like, is meditation psychedelic? And she's, she's like, yes, of course. And, and I think somatic work can be really psychedelic, but there can be this way that when you invite somebody into sensing into their body and going into the imaginal world or, you know, different sort of techniques that are really can be really healing, a lot of people are really blocked. There's a lot of Aversion, really, to our own sense of intuition to the body. So that's one thing I, I do think somatic work can be really psychedelic. I also think a lot of psychedelics help people do the somatic processing that is required to heal PTSD. What I mean by that is that if you're, you know, kind of in, in into it, these are all theories, right? We're just making we're we're making it all up as we go along. We're observing and sort of categorizing and and having ideas. But you know, a lot of people think they say trauma is stored in the body. And trauma is stored in your being. I really think that your spirit is traumatized, your body is traumatized, your psyche, everything kind of, I don't really separate all those things out. But what that means when people say trauma is stored in the body is that the body actually needs to do some processing. And in somatic theory, there's a lot of ways that people think that processing happens shaking, crying, breathing, even just movements, movements that are uh, a part of the trauma. But if you're living in a really sort of a way that you don't feel comfortable letting your body lose control, or you don't really feel comfortable letting your body take control, like you don't feel comfortable letting your body just do the movements that are required to heal, which is a very common thing psychedelics and entheogens in a lot of ways can create a space. And I think it's partly the space that's actually just created by us when we talk about it, you know, when we talk about doing that kind of thing, there's sort of this idea, like, this is a space where you can do this. You can do, it does not matter what you're doing. We're going to take care of you. You can completely lose control. But then in addition to just creating that environment where that's okay, uh, psychedelics and entheogens really help people to actually get into their trauma and start processing it on a somatic level, Which is why you see a lot of people in these kinds of situations doing just what I was saying, like shaking uncontrollably, breathing in in pretty intense ways. And I think that that's the body doing the somatic processing that can be very hard to achieve in like a therapy setting.
1: You have a thesis that sexual violence is spiritual violence. And the way to heal that spiritual violence is via a spiritual modality like psychedelics. So I would love to hear you elaborate on that a bit.
0: Uh, so, what I often say about sexual violence is that it, it really crushes the human spirit, and I, I could get way deep into this. You can listen to the podcast to learn more, but really like there 's a political layer to the spiritual piece, which is that sp- spirituality is a is a place that is empowering, which, uh, and our sexuality is a place that we draw from to be empowered. It's a source of agency, creativity. And when I say sexuality, I don't just mean like sex. I mean like the, the eros, like your life force energy. Um, and sexual violence is an attack on that. And that doesn't just go away just because the incident of the violence has has ended and is whatever, weeks away or even years away. That area needs healing. That's, that's your spirit and your life force needs some healing. And so I do think it makes sense. It's a very logical jump that you would need to approach some level of spiritual uh, spirituality in order to heal. And I also want to say, when I say spirituality, I do not mean religion. I'm really i'm I'm looking at spirituality in a in a way that's you may relate to it through your specific religion, but I'm not you know pushing any particular religion. I'm just talking about really connecting to yourself as a spiritual being, um, and to the larger. World as a spiritual place, and so for that reason, I think psychedelics and entheogens you know, one of the big things people talk about is that they have spiritual experiences on them. I think it makes sense that this is a place that there's a lot of room to heal trauma, but I also want to say I don't think it's the only way to heal, I do think it's very powerful, I think it should be accessible to people, I don't think it should be illegal. However, you know there's lots of people who aren't going to be able to do that for a variety of reasons. Psychedelics and entheogens do have very serious potential negative effects for somebody who can't do something like that, maybe because they have heart condition or they're prone to seizures or they're prone to altered states like psychosis, that they might not be feeling comfortable going into that kind of work. Meditation is really, really powerful. Other types of trance work are really powerful. I- yeah, I think even just developing a really deep spiritual practice, ancestral healing work with your, you know, through your ancestral line, really powerful.
1: I so enjoyed this podcast. And one thing I really was struck by was how the impact built as I listened to multiple episodes. It it had this wonderful cumulative effect that I don't always get from podcasts where the, the subject matter can be disparate from one episode to another, there was something, it was like a, a body of work was built. And as I listened to you interview them, I was wondering what kind of guidelines did you use to approach the sessions so as to make them safe spaces for the people with whom you were speaking? Was there a subject matter or lines of questioning that you needed to avoid? Can you speak a, just a little bit about how you approached interviewing?
0: yeah. It's funny you're asking this question. I gave an entire talk on how to uh, do um, podcasting on sensitive subjects. So I feel like I have a lot to say, but I'll try to keep it brief. One, I had one big criteria, which was that everyone needed to be either in therapy or have a relationship with a therapist that they were willing to go back to. I really didn't want anyone to feel traumatized by the experience. I also really made a choice to, to, to work with people who had had quite a bit of time Since their psychedelic experience, like I didn't want to get somebody who was like, I just came out of ceremony. I'm so open right now. I'm ready to do this. And then after, you know, we've done the interview, it's been published and they're like, that was too vulnerable. Like, why did I do that? You know, I really wanted people to feel like this was something they were choosing to do. Uh, And so one thing I really stressed was you get to have consent all the way through. Like we can do the entire interview and you can tell me you don't want it published. And then I was like, once I start editing, obviously that that's, you know, I'm putting a lot of effort into it. I hope you're really into it. And then, but even then, like the only time I could, you know, I could pull the interview off of the internet, but obviously at that point, you know, a lot of people will have heard it. So I tried to really express consent, uh, the importance of consent along the whole way. The interviews were actually quite a bit longer than what you're listening to. You're listening to like a much shortened version. Um, You know, I think being a therapist helps. I also really didn't push anybody to talk really in depth about their actual trauma. So if you wanted to come on the show and never talk about what happened to you, that's fine with me. Like we don't, you know, sexual violence isn't a form of entertainment. We don't need to you know, kind of hear all the gruesome details and, you know, to be moved about it. And no, like you can just say you're a survivor of any kind of sexual violence you want and let's get into how you're doing the healing. I worked on it for an entire, almost an entire year before it was released. I wasn't doing the episodes and then releasing them that week, which is the way a lot of people do their podcasts. And I did that so that I could really, um, be very mindful about building it as a series and also so that I got a lot of time to really think about like, is this interview done in a way and edited in a way that I feel good about putting into the world? I had a number of people who listened to all the interviews before they were released. You know, it's just really personal information. And I also wanted to make a series that was reasonably listenable for people who are traumatized. So like, I don't, I didn't want, you know, I, I was not... Like I'm not. My intention is not to kind of like have people who are really traumatized listen to the series and then get really triggered while they're listening to it. And my intention is like for them to be able to feel empowered. So that is probably why that kind of has that feeling of of really being a whole body of work.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how you chose your subjects?
0: I definitely really wanted to have a, a diverse group of people, and my intention around that is just like everybody can benefit from this work. You know, not I mean not every single person, but any type of person can benefit and. I just think that there's just a lot of stories about white people, wealthy people, men, um, cis men specifically, straight, mostly straight people, healing, and it just creates an environment where it feels like this type of healing is not for everyone. And I want to make an environment where everybody's voice gets to be heard. With that said, you know, every single person, minus I think one interview, every person on that series. Agreed to do an interview with me and have it released, having never heard any of my work. So that was a really big ask of people. I do think that if I were to do that series over again and people could actually listen to it first, I would maybe be able to draw in a, a much like more diverse group of people. I was actually really hoping to make it more diverse, but one of the reasons I think that I, you know it's hard. It's hard to be like okay. I'm a person of color and I want to do this interview, but you're a white person and I've never heard what you do. So like, I don't know how you're going to, you know, treat my story. And, you know, I'm a queer person. So that was like, it wasn't so hard to get queer people into the series. Uh, And I also, I also really, I actually feel like when it comes to men talking about sexual violence, that is actually unusual, and so definitely I, I worked hard to make it's to try to help men to feel comfortable being in the series because I think it's really important for men to talk about. But yeah, it, it was an important thing for me. I would do it. I would hope that I could make it even more diverse next time.
1: Yeah, just as a quick addendum, could I ask you to elaborate upon that that last point? What what more diversity do you think would have benefited the show?
0: Oh, I just think like. In, in many arenas, more people of color, I would love to support more people of color to talk about sexual violence and to talk about their experiences with psychedelics and entheogens. I would love to support more trans people to be able to speak out, more non-binary people to be able to speak out. And especially, I think, when it comes to queerness, there's a lot of narrative around sort of uh, you might be gay or you might be trans because you were sexually assaulted So I think there can just be a lot of stigma there and and a lot of like not wanting to speak out about it. And I just, yeah, I mean, really just across the board. And I also want to support white people to speak out. And I want to support, I mean, I, I just like, just more voices, more voices.
1: One of your interviewees, I believe their name was Jamie, who is trans. And I got a lot out of that interview. One thing that they said was pointing out a lot of the trauma that they'd incurred through sexual violence, they'd been unable to process. And then while using MDMA, they were able to, to process trauma and and sort of pointing out these journeys are not necessarily all fun. They're, they're a lot of work.
0: Yes. Jamie really articulates so much about their process. And they the thing that they basically say, if I'm remembering the portion you're talking about correctly, is that they couldn't stay in the window of tolerance. And basically, just for listeners, like what that means is that they basically were saying, I couldn't not be so triggered that I couldn't, like I would get so triggered that I couldn't actually actually, do the work to actually just start processing what was happening. I think MDMA is a really powerful um, support for people around that, being actually able to not be triggered and just stay in the actual processing of the trauma. And Jamie also says some really beautiful things about healing around their gender and their experience of themselves uh, in that episode too. It's really good. Hi, everybody! Welcome back to Inside Eyes. I'm your host, Lauren Northrup, and this series is about the use of entheogens and psychedelics to heal from sexual trauma. In today's episode, I interviewed Jamie about their use of MDMA and psilocybin to heal the lasting impacts of childhood sexual abuse. Jamie and I talked at length about the symptoms they experienced before and after their MDMA journeys. For some reference, at the time of this interview, Jamie had done seven MDMA journeys and two of those combined MDMA and psilocybin.
3: I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And uh, from the time, I guess really I was a teenager, I had tried lots of different therapeutic modalities. So I I tried talk therapy, I had tried some different somatic modalities, I had been given lots of different psychiatric psychiatric medication and lots of different diagnoses. I had tried EMDR and equine therapy and been to residential treatment for trauma and PTSD and I didn't feel like I was thriving in the world and I was expending so much energy trying to get through the day and the night, managing my symptoms. I also got to a point where I knew that I didn't want to kill myself and was very clear about that. And I knew I needed some help in being able to process the trauma that had happened to me and not just manage the symptoms that were resulting from the trauma. So I had some friends who had heard about and tried MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and I started reading about it and researching it and looking into options as to how I could do um, an MDMA-assisted psychotherapy journey and spent really a couple of years getting to the point where I could do a journey and then um, was able to do my first journey. And part of that getting to the point that I could do a journey was spending a lot of time coming off of the psychiatric medication that had been prescribed to me to try to mitigate my symptoms.
0: Jamie and I also talked about their first MDMA journey. And in this next clip, you'll hear more about it. But first, Jamie makes a reference to a term that is commonly used in current trauma theory, and especially in somatic psychology theory, so that you can follow along with Jamie's story. Here's a brief explanation of the term, the window of tolerance. The window of tolerance refers to your nervous system. The idea is that when you're experiencing an overwhelming event, like a trauma, you can either become hypo aroused or hyper aroused. Hypo would be things like dissociating and falling asleep. It's a state of feeling numb and not having much energy in your body. Hyper is things like a fight, flight, freeze, or attach response. Basically, when you feel overwhelmed and your nervous system goes to a place of being super anxious and filled with energy, working towards getting you safe and away from danger. When you are in the window of tolerance, you can be present and you aren't in a hypo aroused or hyper aroused state. You can't process trauma when you're in a full-blown trauma state, which you could describe as being out of the window of tolerance. So ideally, one needs to be able to stay in the window of tolerance enough to process their trauma. This doesn't mean that you can't have any nervous system activation to process trauma. In fact, it can be helpful to have some activation. It just means that you cannot be in a full-blown trauma state and also process trauma at the same time. Okay, now back to Jamie.
3: So, like I had said, I had tried lots of different things and lots of different therapies. And I think for me, I I could never really process the trauma because I, the trauma I experienced because I couldn't get to a place where I was sort of like in the window of tolerance enough to process it where I wouldn't dissociate or get so dysregulated that I could even do anything around it. So, what happened for me and my, first journey was for five hours, I was in the window of tolerance where I could process trauma. So, I processed a lot of what I experienced as a kid, and I had a very clear moment in that first journey where I knew what happened to me as a kid was over, it was done, it was not going to happen again, my body knew it was over my spirit and my body knew that I had done a great job, that I had done everything I needed to do as a kid, and that I never was gonna have to do that again with the person who perpetrated the trauma, which is sort of the point, right? <laughs> like, that's what that's what PTSD is, is that, for me, that's what it was, is that I didn't know that was over, so I was having flashbacks and nightmares constantly. I was having nightmares five or six times a week. So my first journey looked a lot like processing really horrible things, me having real clarity around knowing what a great job I did as a kid. And then also having these really almost like whimsical, reparative images. Um, so I see when I do journeys, I have very clear, like visions. I don't, I don't know that that's true for everyone, but I have very clear visions. And so.
0: This is just
3: with the MDMA that you're having these visions, Not just with-, with the MDMA, uh-huh. yeah. no psilocybin. Yeah. So and um, the visions, at least in those those first journeys, were from my kid self, right? So like it it was it was my kid self seeing things. So like for example, one of the visions was, I was in my kid bedroom, uh, where really awful things happened, and tandem bicycle came in through the window of my kid bedroom and it had four seats on it and there was a turtle and a fox and a dog on three of the seats and one of the seats was for me i got on the bicycle and pedaled with the animals out of the bedroom and like flew through the sky and into this like galaxy yes and and that and that was And that's what I needed, right? Like, I needed, like, my body knew. I mean, what's amazing to me about these journeys is my body and my spirit know exactly what I need to heal, and I need these reparative, age-appropriate visions of me getting the fuck out of the house, right?
1: What did you learn in the process of creating inside eyes that you were not expecting to learn?
0: Oh, gosh. I mean... I don't know if I would say this is like a a learning, but more like an experience of just a lot of people really appreciated the show. I've gotten a lot more connected to people through it, like people just kind of reaching out and talking to me about how much it's um, impacted them. You know, when you're doing a project like that and you're working for an entire year on it and you haven't published any of it, it, it's hard to keep it going. Like, it's hard to be like, this is actually important. You know, like no one's listened to it yet and no, no one's given any feedback that it's actually supported them. But something that I just felt more emboldened by and, and more maybe more confident or more settled into is just people really want this information. People want to heal. And people are ready for this information. You know, there's a lot of narratives going on in the media and just sort of the larger conversation about like, you know, are we ready for psychedelics and entheogens to be decriminalized? Are we ready for people to be doing this work? And I'm just like, yes, we needed it yesterday, people. And 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 people are just so ready for it. One thing that I
1: really appreciated about the show was that it veered off into sometimes unexpected realms. There's an interview that you did with, I believe the woman's name was Melissa. She was a hetero woman who had not been subject to childhood sexual violence per se she had gone through something that had pushed her to be really sexually active as a teen and as a young adult and she spoke to you about using psychedelics still as a, as a as a growth tool for me there was something that was really important and interesting that shed light upon the other interviews you put someone in your show who had experienced sexual violence in a more subtle way and yeah, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to to how that impacted the overall body of work.
0: I think it's really important that people understand that even just being in the world and never having experienced a physical form of sexual violence, your sexuality is impacted. You know, when we talk about rape culture, which uh, I would just say is like a function of patriarchy but when we talk about and and also honestly christian supremacy too i think there's just a lot of attack on our sexualities and so a lot of people live lives where they've never been physically assaulted they've maybe never been overtly sexually harassed and they still have a lot of symptoms shame and disembodiment and fear around sexuality and i think melissa's interview is just so beautiful she really articulates that this sort of complexity between having some kind of wounding around her sexuality that's that's not that's not she can't really pin it on a specific experience but it just makes her engage with her sexuality in a way that ends up really being harmful and you know she even says in the series she she kind of basically says like a lot of these experiences like she she just has a really complex way of thinking about consent, you know. She's like, I don't even know that anyone was like doing something so profoundly non-consensual, but that like she wasn't even in a place to consent. And then she talks really beautifully about. The process of, of coming into her body and sort of filling her inner world. And yeah, I just, I wanted to include that interview. I also included an interview at the end, um, James's interview, where she talks about how she doesn't actually know. She doesn't know if she was sexually abused uh, as a kid, but she has all these symptoms that kind of make her wonder. And I just wanted to like include people where there's room to be in in this situation and thinking about yourself and thinking about your sexuality that is really expansive. Many people wonder about experiences. Many people have had experiences where it's confusing like yes I said yes to that situation but gosh it didn't feel right. And so just wanting to broaden the conversation and and put voices into the series that that do that. In today's episode, I interview Melissa. So most of these interviews are about people healing from incidences of physical sexual violence, but many forms of sexual trauma or wounding around sexuality aren't as clear cut and easy to label. And what I love about this interview is how Melissa explores that space where there isn't one particular incident or a series of assaults but a more subtle, pervasive wound around love, self-worth, and sexuality.
4: But I feel like I almost have to say something, you know, briefly about my, my upbringing, mm-hmm. my, my childhood. I, I quit school when I, was, um, when I was nine years old, and I plain refused to go back. So I, w- I was isolated for, um, for many, many years, almost completely isolated from my peers. Because of this long period of isolation, when I finally did sort of re-enter society at the age of 17, when I re-entered society, I, I had a lot of problems with, with boundaries, for instance. Uh, I didn't know how to interact with people at all. I wanted to be liked very much because I had been isolated for so long. I was so lonely, you know, so I wanted to be liked. I think especially in relationships with men, this became a problem for me because I I simply didn't see my own worth in a way and I, I, I gave away way too much, also physically. This fear of rejection and this fear of saying no, it just grew and grew. I mean, it was actually like I, it was almost like the idea or the notion of love and also sex or sexuality is sort of merged into one thing so i thought that you know if i gave away my body then i would be loved and um, i continued in this vein for for years and years and i sort of i gave gave myself away or gave my body away to to numerous men who frankly did nothing wrong but it was more like a betrayal In myself there were a lot of situations that you know i i wish that never took place i'll be very frank about it i mean i probably slept with a hundred men who i didn't really desire because i just wanted them to stay with me and i thought that that was the way to to get them to do that Mm -hmm. was to sort of give them my, my my body some of those situations i i i let um I let them do things to me that I that I really didn't want to happen. Mm-hmm. But I sort of shut off. I kind of disassociated and, and, and they happened. Often in the morning or, you know, in the following week I I would feel a lot of anxiety. I would use a lot of energy to sort of not have to think about the things that had happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also I would use alcohol (laughs) to to sort of, you know, send those memories down into the basement somehow. And over time, the anxiety that I felt just grew and grew. And so I suppose around the age of 25, I decided that I that what what I was doing wasn't working. (laughs) My strategy was not working. And uh, I had romanticized it all the way. I had to romanticize my life because it was so painful some of those relationships or maybe more specifically some isolated like incidents or episodes. Yeah. I mean, I, I would call it sexual trauma, even though there was no force and I would no in no way consider it rape, but I, I still did something that I deep inside really didn't want to do. It was a compulsion. And because I, because I sort of split up, like split off from myself during a lot of these incidents, you know, it felt in a way like it didn't really happen to me. But it did happen. And what I heard about MDMA was that it might make it easier to, to look at those particularly painful things.
0: Can you say a little bit about what the actual experience was like taking the MDMA when you had set the intention to work on some of these mem- more kind of painful episodes and memories?
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
4: Yes um perhaps i can I can tell you about um about the first time that i that i took it which was which was with my boyfriend in those in those first times uh, you know the, the intention was more to heal you know relational difficulties and trauma and and things that we were working on together and things that weren't working in the relationship and and so on the, the first thing i noticed was that my Capacity for empathy just skyrocketed, mm-hmm. and I thought that was very fascinating. but it was like when my boyfriend um talked about his experiences or his emotions, I sort of listened in a new way, and i I felt like I really could put myself in his shoes, and when I realized this, I sort of had this thought. Like, because I had, in many ways, been very hard on myself. You know, I'd been judging myself a lot because of the things that I'd done to myself. Uh, that was the way that I saw it. And I, and I sort of wondered, well, could I turn this empathy towards myself? Mm. Maybe for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it was, I mean, it was a huge... It was big (laughs) empathy, you know, I, I felt like it could stretch anywhere like, you know, into all the corners of the room and it was just, it was very expansive and it was, it was intense but in this really like warm, beautiful way. And I felt like I had sort of tapped into something that was already there and it was kind of just being, you know, seduced kind of to the surface or something.
1: Thus far in this interview that, that we're doing together, you've used the words both psychedelics and entheogens, right? And I know that they're, they're different. And I wanted to talk with you about the ways that they're different, psychedelics and entheogens and the advantage too of being really specific with the terminology.
0: Yeah. So in episode one of my series, um, this actually comes up with um, Spring Washam because she sort of talks about her reasoning um, for, why she uses the term entheogen and she's really specifically in the world of uh, being an ayahuasca advocate and running an ayahuasca retreat. I think she's really specifically saying, you know, I wouldn't call ayahuasca and a psychedelic. And I think a lot of people wouldn't call ayahuasca a psychedelic. Um, she, she kind of talks about just almost kind of like rebranding. Like we need to reeducate people. We need to move away from this kind of psychedelics have a particular history to them Um, And she talks about, you know, that it it can just feel very sort of male-dominated, very white-dominated, very kind of sort of 60s, uh, yeah, just like Timothy Leary kind of vibes coming through on the term psychedelics. I'm not like totally opposed to the term. Also, entheogens, that more refers to plant medicines. Um, and, you know, something like ketamine or which ketamine's not a classic psychedelic. I know for everybody who's a psychedelic buff listening, they're going to be like, that's not a psychedelic. Um, but, you know, for something like LSD, ketamine, MDMA, you know, I wouldn't call those entheogens. Um, and so I-, I would love to have another term that. You know, and people use terms like hallucinogens. Not everyone hallucinates. Like, I don't know that that term actually makes total sense. I sometimes talk about altered state medicine work as kind of a more broad way of saying it. I think we're just putting the pieces together and we don't necessarily have terms that totally fit. But I definitely feel like the term entheogen fits for plant-based medicines. It's more like the term psychedelics. I feel like well, we could we could come up with some other ways to talk about it.
1: So now that these uh, different substances have been brought up in this conversation. Could you speak a little bit about the various ones that were tried by the people who you've spoken to, be they ketamine, MDMA, LSD, ayahuasca. Ayahuasca came up several times, psilocybin. The way that I understand MDMA is as this kind of like life preserver. It's something that people are able to take and allow them to deal with what can be really difficult memories or difficult feelings. And feel kind of safe and supported. Talk to me a little bit about the the various uh, entheogens, psychedelics, and uh, substances and whatnot, and, and how people were able to use them a- advantageously.
0: Yeah, this is something I feel like it would be great for there to be more information about how people are using each of these differently when it comes to trauma. Because a lot of what's happening is that there's you know, anecdotal information, there's studies, there's sort of this like, there's just sort of like a swarm of information out there on the internet. And it can be kind of confusing. Like if you're a person who's interested in doing this work, like what would be the best thing for me? I think you can't really talk about these different medicines without also talking about issues around access that are related to each of them. So for example, you might think one medicine is the medicine for you, but it's illegal, really expensive to use, you know, pretty inaccessible. So you might end up going with something that's more accessible, basically. Yeah, and they all do such different things. They're all so different. You know, with a lot of the plant medicines, people really view those medicines as having their own distinct spirit consciousness. Um, and so, in this series, you can even hear people kind of talking about iboga and uh, mushrooms and ayahuasca as as really like you're engaging with a spirit. People talk less about MDMA and ketamine and LSD from that lens. I'm very curious about these conversations. Like, do those things have sort of spiritual property that you can connect with? Or do they have a spirit consciousness? It's so complex. I don't know that I can, like, in a succinct way, describe all the ways that they're really different. But I do think one thing that's nice about that series is that you can hear somebody, you know, really talk about what actually happened on their LSD experience and why it helped them and really hear that, you know, around different experiences. One thing I will say is that I do get the sense that, again, with the somatic pieces, a lot of the entheogens really drop people into their bodies. It can be, it can be hard to not get dropped in. A lot of entheogens are just sort of sort of demanding that you're in your body immediately. I think that that can certainly be the case with MDMA and ketamine and um, LSD, but I also think there can be sometimes room to sort of escape it, depending.
1: I want to ask you a little bit about the reactions that you got from listeners around this show. Have people reached out to you, particularly people who have been traumatized by, by sexual violence? Have, they, have people reached out to you with, um, with interest uh, around trying psychedelics and entheogens? Have, have people reached out with gratitude towards uh, just the focus and the time being spent upon this subject matter?
0: Most definitely. Yeah. People have reached out about all kinds of things. I will say I don't refer people to anything illegal um, or provide, <laughs> provide drug dealer contacts. Definitely people reach out to me with you know all, all kinds of questions. But yeah, also many people have reached out and people both who have actually already done this work and listened to the series and that still was really supportive to them. And then also people who are just really interested in trying it. Lots of gratitude, for sure. And it feels so good to, I mean, you might know this as a podcaster, but just, you know, you're kind of just like in this pretty isolated zone. So it feels really good to get to con- connect with people and just hear how this series is affecting them. Um, yeah, certainly a lot of people have, um, have really expressed uh, a lot of thanks and appreciation. Can you
1: talk to me a little bit about the reaction that you've received from within the psychedelic community? Has there been gratitude there? have Have you ruffled any feathers by by your point of view or uh, choice of subject matter?
0: Yeah, I don't think I'm particularly ruffling feathers. I mean I think that once you get all up in the psychedelic sort of community or psychedelic world, there's so many different sets or like sort of sub sub arenas that people connect in. And a lot of people kind of just stick to their arena. You know, all the researchers are talking to each other. All the people who are really invested in ayahuasca are all kind of talking to each other. Uh, you know, there's whole separate conferences and separate um, sort of platforms that people kind of will do a lot of their hanging out in. And then there's people who, who really go in between all of it. And so I would say for the most part, there's been a, a positive reception. And I've also connected with, yeah, with a lot of other um, peers or professionals. Yeah, and appreciation. And I think people really appreciate the really personal story aspect of it. You know, Like I said, I think there's a lot of access to research that just tells you the number of people who did it and how it went. Mm -hmm. But for people who aren't actually there in the trials giving the experience or they're in the trials having the experience, to a large degree, we don't actually hear in-depth stories of people healing from their trauma Mm -hmm. and using psychedelics and antigenes.
1: Are there like-minded professionals who are dealing with this same subject matter, how to heal sexual violence via psychedelics and entheogens? Because to me, this is such, I don't know, when I heard about your podcast, I was immediately attracted to the idea of listening to it because it feels like such a prevalent problem within our society. And here is this potential potential solution for it. I, I hear about study upon study that deals with depression. Uh, for instance, which is, of course, an incredibly useful. And, and it's amazing. The, the Johns Hopkins study, the, the numbers that they're, they're getting back from that, absolutely. But this, too, is an issue that plagues so many people. So I'm just curious if you are sort of like a, a one-person band here, or have you started a revolution?
0: Well, I don't feel like I've started a revolution. Actually, it's really important to me to acknowledge that there are many people who have come before me that I'm drawing on their work. And I talk about that a little bit in the show. I think just the push for people to really take sexual violence seriously and respond to it and find ways to support, to prevent it and also to support survivors from healing from it is decades long. And yeah, I think there's a lot of people who are really interested in this. I mean, definitely I've connected with a lot of peers who are interested in it who are either doing the work or are interested in getting involved in it. And one of the big things I would say about this type of healing is that people really can get drawn into the, the part where it's like psychedelics and entheogens, you know, and kind of like they're so into the, the journey experience and it's so exciting and exhilarating. But really also having a very strong understanding of trauma I think is pretty important. And sexual violence is a particular form of trauma. So understanding that and the, you know, the psychological and spiritual aspects of it, I think are really important for anyone, for example, who is interested in this work. And also, you know, a lot of what, a lot of what goes into making these experiences healing is a lot of not that exciting, really slow going therapy or, or other types of work, you know, meditation and, and whatnot. I guess I just want to say that because I I don't want to glorify psychedelics and entheogens. Like so just so much of the healing that happens is happening because people have done a lot of healing to even be able to get to that point. And when you take a psychedelic or an entheogen at a high dose, which is what a lot of the people in my series are doing. I don't think I interviewed anyone who's microdosing. Um, but when you do that, it's really intense. And just like you mentioned with Jamie's episode, it's not, pleasurable most of the time. Most of the time, it's really, really hard. And I think most trauma survivors have pretty hard journeys. And the ability to kind of go in and have a really difficult journey and come out of it more healed and not more traumatized and be able to really use that experience and engage with it fully, you need to do a lot of healing to get to that point. And so I want people who are interested in doing the healing to know that, but also practitioners. You know, I think a lot of people can sort of sit there, especially therapists, sit there with their clients, and they'll be like, oh, this person's not making any movement. I wish they could take a psychedelic or an entheogen. And and my frame is, is like, actually, maybe there's more work that needs to be done here for that to even be a viable option.
1: So there might be a listener on this topic. There might be a listener of this podcast who's starting to get excited about the idea of working with psychedelics to kind of heal some trauma that they've incurred over the course of their life. Talk to me a little bit about words of advice or caution that you feel are necessary to lend.
0: Yeah, so I'll Okay, so first of all I'll say I totally support recreational use of any drugs or psychedelics or entheogens that people want to use. I'm a big fan of harm reduction, like really don't, don't try don't you know, try, trying to help people not be more hurt by the experience and I support people to do that, you know, when they feel it's time. So I, I support all of that. I would also say, if you know that you're going to go in to work on sexual trauma, I would not suggest that you just rush and do it. I would suggest that you build a very, very deep practice around self-awareness and trying to do as much healing as you can actually before you get there. And what that looks like is if you can afford to go to psychotherapy, I'd recommend psychotherapy if you cannot afford to go to psychotherapy, and also if you are in psychotherapy, I still recommend a meditation practice. And if meditation feels inaccessible, even just a somatic awareness practice, just just even noticing your breath is a powerful step towards healing. And I think there's other things that people can do, you know, even something like singing every day, I think, is an embodied experience. And I think it can help you in a journey space. So really just I would recommend people to really do the work to to prepare themselves for something like this. And then the other big thing is I would do research. And my series is a place that is, you know, it you could listen to that as a form of research, reading all about these kinds of things as a form of research, just to decide about, you know, kind of what, what f- you feel the most called to, what medicine you feel the most called to, uh, what actually makes sense as, and is accessible. And then the other thing I would say is, just because you found a guide, let's say you're, you want to use a medicine that's illegal and you only have access to one guide, if that guide doesn't feel like the right person for you, I just want to highly recommend not doing it um, and waiting and trying to find somebody who you feel really good about. And part of why I think that is the case for people who have severe trauma or sexual trauma um, is just that you need a really strong container And you can't expect yourself to heal in an environment where you don't feel comfortable. And so, and and there's this whole other issue that I, like I said, I made an episode on, which is that a lot of sexual violence actually happens in entheogenic and psychedelic spaces. Healers are like any other part of the population like some people are really good at their job and some people are really wounded and they're wounding people in their job i i just really recommend like heeding your you know listening to your intuition um and and you know vetting people uh and wait if it doesn't feel like it's right
1: that's really yeah that's really heavy that last piece that you that you just mentioned do you want to say more about that
0: it's heavy sexual violence is heavy yeah. it's and it's everywhere and people really like to think that it doesn't happen in their community or, you know, there's a lot of narrative about like psychedelics are going to save the world. And a lot of people really like to fantasize that psychedelics inherently make you a better person. I, I, it's just not true. And I, I think psychedelics, they're a tool, you know, and you know, you could use a hammer to build a house and you could you also use a hammer to destroy something. They're just a very, very, very powerful tool. And if you're not doing your personal work, your personal issues are still going to exist. And if you're a, if you're a healer, not, I'm saying if you're a healer, not doing your personal work, there's also a really big difference between spiritual development and psychological development. You know, just because you're connecting to spirit doesn't mean that you're healing your psychological wounds um, and those can come out. And I also think a lot of people really underestimate the unconscious you know, I mean, like my, my line of work is in the unconscious and it's, it's like, it's, it's hard to actually understand that you will do things that you're totally unaware of that are not necessarily always good. A lot of these experiences where people do something that's harmful in therapy or in a psychedelic therapy or any kind of guided, uh, you know, altered state work, uh, most of the time people don't, the, the healing practitioner that's violated doesn't think they've done anything wrong. You know, most of these experiences, people really think that they've done something consensual or that they haven't done anything at all. And there's a, and there's a wide swath, you know, there's a a lot of room between being in integrity and doing something as severe as assaulting someone, you know, there can just be even, um, just being inappropriate in in other ways, uh, that are more subtle Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's really heavy. It's also just like, we have, we have to just honor that this is real.
1: Thank you for speaking to that. So I just have a couple of, of more questions. This one's coming from left field. You can choose to answer it or say that's insane. But so this QAnon thing has has come up a lot.
0: Yeah, and, and
1: it's, it's not funny. I shouldn't be laughing. This QAnon thing has come up and there's it's basically a vast conspiracy where part of it hinges upon this idea that there are mass pedophilia rings that are being run by this globalist cabal. And I have this pet theory that a lot of the people who are sort of believing, like amongst the people that I run with, we're constantly saying, I can't believe that people believe this garbage. But I had this thought the other day that because I believe sexual violence to be very, very widespread and not spoken about, not reported a lot uh, within our society, I'm wondering if some of the people who ascribe to this theory actually have experienced childhood sexual trauma which has led them towards their their thought number 1 don't trust you know you can't trust anybody if you've experienced that that violation of your trust and just just the idea that it could be widespread widespread enough that there could be a a, a global conspiracy around it
0: yeah so um I can't remember who said this, but somebody pointed me to this little clip on Instagram the other day where somebody was talking about the QAnon conspiracy theories and basically outlining how they're very anti-Semitic and this narrative that there's a satanic sex ring that is run by really powerful people with lots of money is actually, uh, it never stopped. This is actually, this, this. have you ever heard of the term blood libel? It's a, it's a, um, there's this sort of, there's basically the the, the OG conspiracy theory. <laughs> there's a conspiracy theory from, I want to say this is the 1200s. Forgive me people. I have a terrible memory with dates, but um, the, this idea that like Jews are um, killing children for their blood, committing, and even with the witch trials, like committing horrible sexual acts with Satan, which the witch trials weren't specifically targeting Jews, but there's a, there's a big like, Uh, crossover with targeting Jews, targeting women, um, targeting poor people, uh, and sort of accusing people of violent sexual acts, uh, satanic ritual, heresy, really heresy. And this person was just saying like, look, this is just a continued conspiracy theory that's been growing since that time. And I thought that was really interesting. I'd love to hear what other people think about it. But so in terms of the narrative of um, these people who are adhering to this, you know, it's possible that some of it is because they're aware of sexual violence and they're triggered and they're jumping onto this sort of really, um, I think, yeah, harmful bandwagon. I also think that that trajectory of sort of accusing somebody of something that's that's pretty terrible. Uh, like that, that doesn't have a lot of foundation, to me, that kind of points to projection. And so, you know, the, the, this narrative, for example, with witch trials or blood libel with Jews, it's, it's a narrative where Christians who are committing horrible acts of torture, horrible abuses of power, are claiming that the people who they're abusing are actually committing those horrible acts of power. And that's a projection. And with the QAnon conspiracies, I do wonder about that. Like, you know, a lot of the people who are in the QAnon world who are saying that there's all this sexual violence happening, um, I don't see them responding to actual sexual violence that is happening. I don't see them caring very much about women's rights. I don't see them confronting rape culture. In fact, I think a lot of them are supporting, um, you know, a candidate for president and are sort of at this point when this airs, it's probably going to be former president who actively, you know, said in his many times that he's basically assaulted women. He doesn't care and he doesn't think that it's an assault. So I'm like. To me, it seems less like these people are just really triggered, and more like they're actually projecting onto people the 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 disowned parts of themselves that they don't want to engage with.
1: Okay, well, thank you for following me down that rabbit hole a little bit. Um, <laughs> kind of just in the in the interest of of putting a bow on this conversation, I want to hear a little bit about the ways that creating this series affected you in like what you want to do next what do you want to focus on and what are your thoughts around the future of psychedelic psychotherapy what would you like to see
0: well in terms of the future of psychedelic psychotherapy i just want to see it being accessible i want to see people being able to you know if you if that's something that would help you i do not want you to have any barriers to accessing it that's what i like want to see full on. And if you and if you want to do that with a guide too, like not just like, okay, I'm gonna get my friends to do this kind of, you know, because I'm desperate. But like if you want to do it with a guide and you want to do it in a safe space, I I want you to be able to have that. Um and in terms of how the series impacted me, um, I will say it was very hard to make. You know, it's really emotional to kind of listen over and over again. And you know, I was doing it a lot on the weekends. Um uh and I'm a psychotherapist during the week. So it was definitely really heavy. Um, I probably uh, won't make another part. Sp- I plan to do a season two. I probably won't make it exactly the same. I'm currently writing a book that as, has sort of postponed season two, also coronavirus postponed season two. And the book I'm writing is not, not. it's seemingly not about these things. It's actually just a lot about supporting healing practitioners to really step into the path and sustain themselves and do that from an emotionally and spiritually grounded place. And part of that, the impetus for that book is that I really want there to be more healing practitioners who feel, you know, resourced enough to support all this healing that I obviously want the world to receive. After I finish the book, I'm hoping to do season two. I, I hesitate to say exactly what season two is going to be about because I think it's, you know, it could change, but I'll just say something I'm very interested in is what I call outsourcing warriorship. And really I'm, I'm, how do we create communities where we're protecting ourselves and where protection is, is really valued. I think in a lot of ways, part of what happens with sexual violence is we, we deny that it happens and then we also sort of think about it. Like that's not something I have to, I should have to deal with. Like I don't, You know, if that happens to somebody who I know, I'm not responsible to support them or kind of help them or to stop it from happening. And um, there's just so many examples uh, in stories I've heard where somebody could have done something and no one did anything. And that might mean that the violence then happened. It might mean that the violence went on for longer than it needed to. Uh, Not that it needed to ever happen. But so I'm really interested in this idea of outsourcing warriorship, which I really think relates to the way that we engage with police and the military and just kind of this notion that we don't have any sort of like sense of, sense of responsibility, not any, but we have a limited sense of responsibility around protection at this point. And we really see this as someone else's job. And I think that's actually really harmful to our, you know, to all of humanity to not sort of embrace some level of responsibility and protectorship um, inside each of us.
1: Laura May Northrup, I really want to thank you for the work that you've done for creating what is really one of my favorite podcasts. It's a, just a, an extremely strong body of work. It's, it's like a book, really. It, it is. It's deep and it's surprising and it's complete. How can our listeners know more about you and and follow what you're doing in in the world today
0: um well thank you so much sam for having me and i also just that that's a that's a big compliment thank you um i hope to do i hope to turn it into a book eventually and do more interviews and whatnot but there's only limited time um Yeah, if people want to stay connected, you know, you can find my podcast Inside Eyes on any podcasting app. Uh, You can find me at my website. It's my name, lauramaynorthrup.com. And then in terms of social media, I'm on all the things, minus TikTok, I'm not on TikTok, but really the the one I post the most on is um, Instagram and that my handle on that is at Laura May Northrup. So it's a good place to find me if you want to stay up to date. And I do do a variety of, uh, like I teach and give talks and things. So there are other opportunities to connect and learn with me.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Peter Kobabe, Terry Gilby, and Michelle McCrary. Our music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contribution.